AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Jan Wenner, who's got a new book of interviews entitled The Masters. Jan, how'd you decide who was going to be in the book? Well, first off, it's good to be here with you, Bob, and I'm glad to be, glad to be welcomed and welcomed and welcomed. You bet. So surely, um, I picked the interviews. I didn't choose the interviews. They chose me. Uh, they are the ones I did over a 50-year period of Rolling Stone, and they were just the people who I was intuitively interested in the most of talking to and finding out what they were thinking and about how they did what they were doing, what they thought about rock and roll. Uh, so it wasn't very deliberate. I didn't decide even to do this until last year when I looked back and saw this collection of people representing a really great selection of the of the men, not women, unfortunately, who made rock and roll in over this last 50 years, made it what it was today. They mainly were people, you know, are, they were old. These are people who have been around for a while. Uh, but they were, in a sense, the masters. The Stones, Dylan, the Beatles, you know, Bono, the Dead, Bruce Springsteen, the Who. These are the great names of our times. They're not all of them. It's not complete. But these are the ones I gravitated to, and it turns out to be a great selection. So who was left on the cutting room floor? Well, nobody was left on the cutting room floor. I mean, there's a few interviews I did that I didn't, weren't done with the kind of gravitas and length and intensity. I mean, I did leave a, a Hendrix interview on the cutting room floor because, you know, looking back, <laughs> it was like 1968, and I just went out, he was in San Francisco, and I went over to his hotel room. We sat around all afternoon smoking dope and, and playing with the tape recorder. It just wasn't that good. It's not not very much 
one that's going to last a long time. Um, and then one of the very first sentences did with a guitarist named Mike Blomfield, who was a great guitarist, somewhat obscure, but also not a great thinker about rock and roll and all the issues that were attached to it in terms of youth culture and uh, uh, the politics of the United States. Okay, the interviews range from 1968 with Pete Townsend to today, 2023 with Springsteen. Did you always have in the back of your mind this 55-year-old interview with Townsend, or did you have to go back and review what interviews you had done? Um, I always had it in mind. Once the idea that I would do this book came to me, I didn't do that many. I mean, these are, this is this is most of the work that I did because I didn't do interviews as a, as a general thing. I was busy running the magazine. But if there was somebody I was really interested in and wanted to talk to, wanted to learn from, wanted to just soak up the vibe, but understand why is it that we're all so excited about this music? Um, I would I would go do interview them with. So I knew that they were there. Of course, I read them again, but it was clear to me which they were. These were all of them, really, except for Hendrix and Bloomfield. Okay, but and I saw. I used to interview the presidents too. I interviewed Obama and Clinton and Gal Gore and so forth. But th this was about music, not about politics. Just staying with the politics for a second. Could you get straight? I mean, I read these interviews were in when they were in the magazine, Rolling Stone, of course. But when you're there sitting down with them, are they answering honestly, or are they always weaseling? And how do you nail them down? Are you talking about musicians or politicians? Politicians. Politicians are not weaseling or lying or... If you try to ask them stuff that is kind of a gotcha question or is going to get them in trouble, you know, they're not going to answer you, number one, because the slightest mistake they make can be used by the opposing party. Now, these are interviews I did in the middle of elections. You know, the slightest little misstatement, and the other guy's going to jump on you. And the other guy, being Republican, they're usually merciless, you know, and thankless in their ability to distort and anything. So there's a danger in that. So also, I find those areas boring. You know, the gotcha question is never interesting in the end. Um, the What I'm trying to do, and also the other thing is that because the politics is so rough these days, and the communications around this media is so intense, you know, focus on everything. They are really pretty carefully rehearsed about everything they're going to say. Not rehearsed in the sense of rehearsal for debate, but they're practiced. They know their positions on stuff. They, they've been vetted. They've discussed this stuff with their advisors. It's a product of a lot of policy stuff. They've decided already what they're going to stand for and what they're going to campaign and what they're going to stand for and what's the best compromise of interest, say, between unions uh, and the coal industry and, you know, environmentalists. They've come up with their ability how to satisfy all the interests of where they, where they want to be on a position. So you're not going to get them to make any breakthroughs there. So what I do is when I interview them, is I want to try and get to know them a little better. I want to know a little bit about how they feel about things. How do you feel about you know, when you go to the Arctic, like, say, Obama did or whatever, do, do you worry about your own kids and what's going to happen, you know, in 20 years? Where's your level of compassion about this, that, and the other thing? And just trying to get the personal aspect. You have to know those person. I always ask them, of course, what's their favorite music? And uh, to me, that's fascinating. And it tells you a lot about the individuals. I mean, I, I can tell you exactly who these people are almost by type because of the music they listen to, you know? 
Al Gore is a total Beatles fan, you know, Bob Dylan fan. The new Dylan record would come out, he'd listen to it 30 times. I know it, I know that person, you know. Uh, Obama was a big uh, Stevie Wonder, loved the Rolling Stones, picked all the right albums, you know, he quoted Dylan to me, but not the, when Obama said, I asked him what his favorite, what spoke to him during his campaign. The Dylan thing, he didn't say, blowing in the wind or the times, you know, or how many roads must have, he said, well, what speaks was, you know, Maggie's farm. In other words, I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. <laughs> and which is a song about, you know, working on a plantation, you know, black people being, I mean, he was deep into it, you know, and he's getting the real, anyway, that's the politician thing. Not to say, you know, you ask about issues and a lot of serious stuff. Uh, but I think the issue with my interviewing what I like about my interviews with the musicians and with the politicians, I am not there to challenge you, you know, or hold you up uh, on the cross for your sins, imagine. Otherwise, I'm there to find out what you think, you know, and what you believe and what's influenced you and where you came from and what your vision is for yourself and for our country. And I find those things much more interesting, harder to get, and rare to find. And I think that's one of the things that's so special about my interviewing style and about the book I just wrote or just put out. Just staying with politics for a minute, Jimmy Carter was constantly quoting Bob Dylan, other rock lyrics, was friends with the Allman Brothers. Was mm -hmm. that fake or was that real? Oh, that was real. You know, I mean, that, that was real. You look, talk to... We endorsed him. Hunter fell in love with him. But talk to Bob about it, for example, you know, who spent all his time with Carter, talking to him, you know, and and uh, discussing all the concerns that they would have in his lyrics. I mean, I, Jimmy Carter is the real deal. You know, his is uh, very unusual for president to be so direct and open, you know, and candid about stuff. And, uh, you know, he paid the price for that a little. You know, he... Paid the price for his times. He, I don't, you know, he ran against Reagan. He had the hostage crisis. I mean, I think that could have all worked. And he would, if he had been reelected, would have gone on to even greater things, you know. But in and of itself, I think what he did was so important. Okay, there are two Dylan interviews in the book. One is classic Dylan in that he obfuscates. One is more honest. What was your experience like in terms of getting some level of truth, getting anything at all from Dylan. Bob is the trickster. You know, he's a, the Joker man. He's the, you know, a song and dance guy. He's very funny. He has and, and a great wit, which he likes to exercise. And he also has an attitude, which is, I, I don't, he doesn't really want to explain a lot of stuff to you. You know, I mean, he's reluctant to give it up and, what do you need to know it for? And also, he's been bugged all his life by people who have found such deep meaning and and views about life that are so more important to them. I mean, he understands the role he's played in people's life and people's lives and our country's life. And he gets all that. And I think he understands well where he stands in poetry and literature and almost exactly where he stands, you know. Um, he would never admit any of that. He 
would profess, I don't know, you know, this, I, I just am here to amuse people. I'm here to sing songs or amuse people or I'm a song and dance man or stuff like that, which is patently untrue. And he knows that. But he, and he, he just likes playing games. So I think when I read over the first interview, the one you're referring to as a classic and the one that's which he seems to be most evasive, read it a little more carefully. He's not that evasive. If he doesn't want to answer a question, he won't answer it and he'll say so. You know, I mean, it's, or, it, where was that one about, um, or I say, well, we'll have to see about that. I mean, he gets out of it, not by lying, you know, but by kind of amusingly, you know, softballing the question, throwing the question away or hitting it with the side of his hand in a gentle and very funny fashion. Um, and um, for at that at that time for that period, that was as straight as he was ever going to get. Straightforward with people in interviews. So, but I know what you're saying, and so you know these that it's difficult to interview. But I the thing about that particular interview I thought was really great is it felt so much of that time and place. It so recalled that Bob Dylan. You know, you could just hear it. You know, that was him then. It was so authentic. You know, and he was also. Read again, reading between the lines. He was very personal about stuff, you know, because I was kept asking, how do you feel about being, you know, this so-called youth leader? And he, says, I don't, and he says, I don't want to. I wasn't meant for that. You know, there are people in that position. If I could lift every burden, I would. But that's not me. That's not my job. But then, so I find it such an interesting document. I mean, just, I've, that preserves Bob in that period so brilliantly. And it's a better and nicer Bob than you see in Don't Look Back. And then in the second one, which we did in uh, 2007, I think was the date. This is, of course, a very mature Bob. I mean, he's got modern times out at that time. And, and he's just much more reflective and deep and thoughtful about everything. But it's that funny thing. It starts out with that tease he's doing to me. You know, like saying, well, I don't know. You know, like, I'm not going to, I can't, you know, what, what you know, like <laughs> just putting me through the ringer a little. And we, and by that time we gotten to know each other and trust each other, and it's reflective of that. Okay, you leave the grammatical errors in Bob's language in the book. Is that an affectation? Does he really know the right uh, word to use, or is it him being uneducated? What is it? I I don't think I leave the grammatical errors in there. Well, no, you he'll say them instead of they. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, I th I think when you edit a, a verbal interview for reading, you have to now turn into something that's readable. And if you always get this, if you get a constant repeating thing, uh, 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 all the time, or misuse of grammar, you know, I generally take it all out unless somehow you're learning something from that or there's something idiomatic or special about that. But the repetition of stuff can become cliched. Also, like, and the ones who were hardest to interview, it took a lot of editing, particularly with Jerry Garcia, because here was a lot of a uh, man's and oh man and wow and, you know, a lot of that kind of hippie stuff. And it, when you listen to the tape, you don't even hear it. But if you see it on the written page, you know, Jesus, there's five wows in one sentence, you know, and seven uhs. And so you want to cl clean up as a courtesy, but without changing any meaning and also leaving enough in so you can get the sense of the person, the way they talk and who they are. So striking a balance. Okay.
What's fascinating to me is in your talk with Dylan and your talk with Bono, there's a lot of accolades for bringing it all back home. Whereas conventional wisdom is Highway 61, which has like a rolling stone and then blonde on blonde thereafter. So mm -hmm. in your own personal hierarchy from that early era, the pre-70 or the pre-so-called motorcycle accident era, mm -hmm. what is the greatest work? Well, it's a, that's a hard one to say, but say in that era, if you, if you want to talk about that pre-John Wesley Harding, pre-motorcycle accident, and you're saying really the Blonde on Blonde bring out back home or or uh, Highway 61. I mean, it's a matter of personal preference, really, or maybe when you first heard it. I'm, I'm a Highway 61 guy, you know, but the other two are just genius as well. Bono uh, is a intellectual guy, so he likes... He likes bringing it all back home, you know, and the Grateful Dead first, Jerry and those people came into it during bringing it all back home during a kind of folk era. But like Bruce says he's listened to Highway 61 a hundred times, you know, I mean, that's where he got his rock. That's when he grew up and he came into it. Was it that record? He didn't even knew bringing it all back home it existed. He just heard that rock and roll sound on 61 with Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper and that band and went nuts, as did I. <laughs> So they're all, I, I, it's hard to say. They are great records, you know, and they continue to be great records. Okay. So were you aware of the first Dylan album on Columbia, which was mostly covers, or did you come in on freewheeling? Where did you come in? I came in on uh, bringing it all back home. And I suppose Highway 61 more than anything. Okay, so how did you become aware of uh, bringing it all back home? Because, of course, there were covers, but it wasn't until Highway 61 that Bob was on Top 40 Radio, and this is prior to the breakthrough of Underground FM Radio. Well, you know, the first big, big Dylan hit song was uh, Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds. And so once you heard that, which was a breakout song, you know, and it's writing and what it was saying and... Take me on a trip on your whirling spaceship, whatever, you know, through the smoke rings of your mind. With that so-called folk rock, 12-string Jim McGuinn accompaniment, you know, you merely sat up and said, where did this come from? And let me find out about it. But also, your friends were telling you about it. And it's just, you know, everybody's discovering, you know, a lot of people were discovering Bob Big at that particular point. You know, in the more pop, you know, was that, that song broke, broke Bob through to the rock and roll audience. And broke through folk rock and set the stage for a 61. Okay. There's a lot of debate 50 odd years later as to how extensive Bob's motorcycle accident was, whether that's an issue of retiring from public observation or whether he was really banged up. What's your opinion? I think he was really banged up. Um, you can get pretty banged up in a motorcycle accident. But I also think it came at a time where he needed to be slowed down because I think he was taking a lot of speed then, a lot of drugs. And I think it's kind of evident in his behavior and his lyrics. You know, I'm just, you know, this is just intuitive, non-expert's opinion. <laughs> uh, this is an expert opinion. Um, the uh, And he needed to slow down. He's forced to slow down, you know, by the hand of God or whatever, by taking a turn too fast. And he understood it as such. That it was a sign, a signal. You know, they wouldn't have been out there recklessly motorcycle. 
so I think it was key and critical to his work. I mean, I think what he did next was he did John Wesley Harden, right? Which is a, a complete turn from, you know, uh, 30 minute songs on um, Blonde on Blonde and talking about, you know, amphetamines and pearls and your magazine husband just has to go and stuff like that to a very, this very classic restrained uh, country album made, made in Nashville, which is a beauty. And it's a, you know, it's a different Bob after that. I think it was very real. Okay. In a different era where there are limited media sources, Rolling Stone broke the story of the basement tapes, the great white wonder. How did you become aware of that? I, I had forgotten that I had done that. I had, and I read it somewhere. In a very small world then of the music industry and music people, music scenes, uh, somebody gave me a copy of this tape that they had sent out for demos to, uh, as demos for selling songs. And it was circulating around a little, a few people knew about it and here, here's something special and was, well, had no public visibility whatsoever. And I heard it and loved it. And then I thought, this is an album. I mean, this could, is justified easily being released. And I wrote a thing in Rolling Stone and I like, Issue 15 or 14 or something. Say, the ba and it said, the basement tapes must be released. You know, and, uh, and then I reviewed what was on there and said why it should be released. And soon enough, they released them. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, in the fall of 70, I believe, you printed a whole story that was a hoax about this album. <laughs> what was the genesis uh -huh. of that? I had nothing to do with it. It was Greel Marcus, 
uh, who's a very distinguished critic, who was our record review editor there, and he and some of the uh, his friends, and who were also some of the critics, decided they put together it w- a an album called The Masked Marauders. What was it called? Yeah, Great the Masked White Wonder. The Great the White Masked Wonder Marauders were the artists. The name of the album was Great White Wonder. This is after this is uh, the era of the supergroup, so called. It was when you know uh, Bloomfield was playing. I forget what the groups were. Traffic may have formed then, or maybe it was Cream was around then. And they were starting to put guest musicians with other bands. It was very unusual then. It didn't happen. You had to have the actual permission of the record company that you were signed to to participate. I mean, it's so antique. It's, these, these are long ago days. I'm feeling. And um, so they, they wrote a spoof. They did a spoof of the supergroup and they reviewed it. I mean, it, they didn't do the. They wrote a review of the Great White Wonder, and said that Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, and Paul McCartney, or whomever, had all assembled secretly in Hudson Bay, Canada, you know, and put together this great record, and you know, it was flying off the shelves or whatever. People, so we started getting phone calls at the office asking, "How do you get the record? How do you get in touch with the group? You know, managers calling, record companies calling them because they want to get a hold of it." Well, of course. <sighs> So Greel said, well, they go ahead and record the album. <laughs> you know, and, and then Warner Brothers signed it. You know, knowing for well, but they, it was a just general good time goof. Okay, in the second Dylan interview. Nowadays, they uh, throw you, you in jail for violating your copyright. Sorry. In the second Dylan interview, uh, you talk about the endless tour, although it's not referred to under that moniker. Um, whereupon he rearranges the music and he the classic tunes anybody who goes to the show knows that he may play a classic tune and you may not even recognize it bob gives his explanation do you buy his explanation and do you still enjoy the modern day concerts which are not faithful well i forget his explanation just refresh me on that well he's basically he says the song deems to be played that way that ultimately you start with the recording, then the song evolves, and every night mm-hmm. there's a different... Listen, it's a fakakta explanation. That's why I asked <laughs> you. <laughs> it's, there's, a, you know, there's a grain of truth in that explanation, but that's all that's about what there is on that beach. I think that there's a couple things that work. He has more fun doing it differently, rather than singing at the same time, 18 million times in a row. And then there's a period in there where he would, I thought, did it deliberately just to confuse, frustrate, you know, do whatever kind of strange thing is in his mind. I mean, he has got to have known that the audience comes to hear some of the big hits as well as his new stuff. And, and it's a disappointment to people not to hear one of their favorite Bob songs done in a way you expect to hear. And then to not recognize them, which he knows they're not recognizable. And we called him on it. And I'm sure a lot of other people, I remember even walking out of a Dylan show years ago because of that. You know, it's just so, you know, you don't want to know that the song is. You know, you barely recognize it. And it's frustrating. And it's, and it, and it, and it's, and it's uh, disrespectful of his audience. Well, uh, somewhere along the line, you know, about 10 years ago, he, he changed that. And he went back to doing the songs. And now he does something really interesting. He does a, a couple of versions of the old songs in the old, generally the old style or the familiar style, you know, a little little better, a little that, which is really satisfying. Then he'll take a few. He'll really rework them in a way that's so amazing. He will turn something, you know, a ballad into a 
a stately, dignified, aching, beautiful song of something like, like Don't Think Twice, you know? He, it just it becomes a gospel tune almost. I mean, they're beautiful what he does with it. And now what he's doing, in addition to that, is he's really singing primarily his new records and his new songs, which he's got a lot of now. And he, he doesn't have the voice for the old songs. You know, it's not, they don't suit him anymore. And it's better for him to stay away from them because he can't do, you know, tambourine man or blown in the wind like he used to in the way he was. It's got to be in a different way. And he's doing that with real taste and style and imagination now. And he's accepting, you know, his new voice. It's, it's kind of blown out and hoarse from smoking and, uh, but still, nonetheless, quite beautiful. Let's switch to Jerry Garcia. What do we know? Uh, had four albums, well, three albums before Live Dead. And if you opened up Live Dead from 1969, you saw the Grateful Dead playing in the streets of San Francisco. The real breakthrough was Working Man's Dead and then American Beauty. But since you were living on the West Coast, Prior to Working Man's Dead, in the book, Jerry gives a, a relatively complete delineation of his history and his history of the band. But were you aware of the dead back then and what was their cultural impact? Oh, well, I was aware of the dead before I even started Rolling Stone. I mean, uh, they were part of this kind of like hippie drug scene that I was getting into. A few people in Palo Alto. In, near Stanford, doing me in Berkeley and a bunch of kids in San Francisco State. And so everybody in each of those three scenes was taking drugs and aware of uh, the people in the other scenes and go back and forth. That was the genesis of it all. So I happened to, because of that, run into the dead in 1965. I went to a Rolling Stones concert in San Jose and next door to the, you know, or in that same neighborhood, the very first as, well, sort of the very first acid test was being conducted, and I went to that, and it was the dead was playing in the living room of this big kind of college fraternity or something like that, and it was the first night they'd ever performed as the Grateful Dead. They had been Mother McCurry's jug band up until that, and that was the first night they were using that name. And it was just in somebody's living room, and, but it was the group. It was them. And uh, and I went up to, I, it was either Lesh or Weir, and I said, well, wow, you guys, and I'm taking acid at the time. You guys are like, oh, my God, mind-blowing. What, what is your name? And he turns around and goes, we are the Grateful Dead. And I said, well, what is that? Okay. But then, uh, so anyway, I would see them a lot before starting Rolling Stone. And once I started Rolling Stone, they were, of course, you know, part of what we did. I, one of my best friends was a best friend of the, Bill Kreisman, a drummer, and kind of did, managed him on the road for a little bit. And so... You know, I saw a lot of them, you know, and I'm, I was a, I'm a deadhead. And what about Keezy? Were you aware, have you read One Flew Over uh, the Cuckoo's Nest and the Acid Test, and was he a presence, or did you have to wait for Tom Wolfe's book to find out what was really going on? Oh, I didn't have to wait for Tom's book. Um, I, the, the, we, Keezy, how did I, I was aware of Keezy. I went to Acid Test. I've been down at his house. We, uh, uh, his, everybody knew his books and they were brilliant, great books. I mean, great books. And he was just a key member of that, that tripartina part tight scene I was talking about. He was in Stanford. He participated in the first LSD experiments conducted by some government agency with Stanford. 
under contract at Stanford. And part of that group of guys go, whew, this stuff is fantastic. I don't know what they're trying to test for, but and turned on the grateful dead and a lot of other people to the acid around there. And and so Kesey was kind of, in a way, the, the godfather of the San Francisco scene and, and the acid test and, you know, just sort of one branch of the hippie thing. Ken later, you know, became a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. I mean, I think I cut it up. He wrote about, I think, 27 pieces for Rolling Stone over the years. And, uh, you know, he's a hero of mine in, in a way. I mean, I think he's, I said, the god of the sea. He's a great man, great American novelist. Okay, so to what degree did electric Kool-Aid acid test have an impact upon you personally? It didn't personally impact. I'd already been there and done that. It impacted me on that I was so impressed with Tom and how he was able to catch what I consider such an evanescent scene, you know, something that's ephemeral and ethereal and uh, uh, hard, to, hard to get, and he got it. And it made me all the more impressed with him. So I just, one of the first things I did when I started Rolling Stones, try and find him and seek him out and to get to write, to get for, to get him to write for us. And I did, and he did write for us, and history came out of that. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, Tom has passed, but in the aftermath and a little bit during his later years, people said that he was a Republican right winger. Would you agree with that? Uh, you know, I, I never talked politics with Tom in that way, partially because I suspected or knew he was a very conservative individual. But not he wasn't conservative in this hard right sense that people are now. He was he Tom was a humanist. You know, he liked people. He liked weird people, you know, and weird culture. I mean, it, it by no means was he kind of one of those William F. Buckley type haters. He was kind of snobby, Tom. You know, he could be very, he was very elegant, aristocratic. His thinking was very conservative. He's old-fashioned. He's a very old-fashioned gentleman. And he was a great gentleman uh, from the South, from Virginia. But he wasn't a radical, you know. I mean, he would never go for something like Trump. He'd be terribly amused by Trump. But, uh yeah, he was conservative. I think he was politically conservative, yes. But not in that way that you hate people these days. So the dead have this burst of popularity in the 70s. They ultimately have an MTV hit on Arist in the 80s. But there becomes this whole new wave of fans before Jerry dies. Of course, we have the incident at the gig with the stands where people die, etc., but as someone who has been there from day one, what do you think about the latter-day deadheads? Let me go a little bit further. If I say anything about the Grateful Dead, people correct me, even though I saw them in 1970 and they weren't even born yet. Well, they're showing your age. I mean, what, what, what is exactly, what is the question there? How do you, you feel? Do you feel that the latter day that it's an affectation I that see. the Gen Xers have latched on to the Grateful Dead? Uh, let me go one step further. Springsteen, who's in your book Thanks. and very eloquent in your book. You know, I saw Springsteen. I bought the first album. Saw him at the bottom line in '74, the year before Born wow. to Run. 
What I always say about Springsteen is I have no problem with Springsteen. I just hate his fans. <laughs> <laughs> Same deal with the dead. They're authorities. You can't say anything negative, etc. Now, the Grateful Dead, since you were around back then, they would play for four hours. One hour would be unlistenable. One hour would be great. And two hours would be so-so. But you can't even say that. The, the dead have been iconized at this point in time. So with your perspective, how do you feel about the dead and the modern-day interpretation of them? Well, I mean, I, I love the classical dead, the dead before anybody, before they made their first record. That was a dead I grew up with her and got indelible and was made indelible in my mind, whether it's Pigpen's Blues playing or Jerry's Jerry's <clears throat> wonderful guitar playing. And um, and I liked where they evolved too, but they got to a point for me, I, I it's hard to say when I got so involved with Rolling Stone running to New York that I kind of lost track for a while there. But there's a period in there that <clears throat> um they just lost. I lost for me. We got too jazzy, too improvisational, and I think that came together with too many drugs. So they kind of lost that. Even to this day, I, I prefer the more structured songs, uh, and uh, you know where they're tight and they're bluesy, and you can really hear the guitar playing and really act as a good rhythm section. Um, I can kind of get lost in China Cat Sunflower, you know. And just I love to listen to Virgil Garcia. Garcia's guitar playing and it's really wonderful voice but you know I have a limited there's a limited range of dead stuff I like uh, today the band of the last several years with John Mayer in it I went and saw it was, it was terrific actually and I think it's really shaped up I think a lot to do with John Mayer being there I mean he's a wonderful interpreter not an imitator of Jerry but I think he brought some kind of missing structure and professionalism to the band you know that the, the, the the set is organized and tighter. And they're kind of older and more responsible to the audience and they still deliver the long jams and they still deliver all that. And, you know, but it's the essence of it. I have no problem with the fans. I mean, I look at it and, you know, I just see people, you know, when I see it, I see people having a good time and trying to recreate the old days or trying to live another, live in another era. And, you know, whether they felt it deep in their soul or where it came from or its style or whatever. I just think it's all sincere and having a good time and looking strange and, you know, celebrating an era, which was wonderful. I mean, it's great to be a fan of something, you know? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a more, I'm a big fan, you know, of lots of particularly stones and Bruce and Bob and the people I've had in here and the dead. Uh, and, you know, it's deep into the trivia of it and the passion about what song is better, which album do you like more? You know, it's fun. It's, it's, it's good to do that. And I, I think with a group like the Dead, which has, stands for such positive stuff, you know, and when the music is so interesting and fulfilling, I think it's great, you know. And uh, so I, I, I don't disdain them. And, and my and, and and you know half the time their opinion some random fans' opinion is as good as mine you know I mean Bruce plays for three and a half hours the Dead plays for three and a half hours Stones just did two and a half I'm ripped off you know but they on the other hand put a fortune to that fucking stage you know okay just staying with John Mayer Dead and Company was tighter 
and more together than the Grateful Dead with Jerry ever were. Although, right. if you say that, you know, you're a heretic. But let's switch to John Lennon. You have an, an edited version of what came out as a book, as Lennon remembers. Now, supposedly, Lennon was pissed that he gave you this interview that you turned into a book, that you sold as a book. Was that your understanding? And what was going on there? Well, the the book as it now is out is a full and complete thing. And the interview that is in the book that I'm just publishing, <clears throat> I cleaned up a lot for, as you mentioned before, for, you know, verbal tics. And I took a lot of stuff out that was just not relevant, you know, some discussion of Apple business. There's things that were current then or names that don't mean anything to just, you know, focusing more on stuff. And, and uh, the reaction, the reaction after the book came out was pretty stunning. You know, it was like became worldwide headlines because it was the first time that any Beatle talked openly about what it was like to be in the Beatles, who they were, what they did, let alone, you know, who wrote what and all the kind of mus musicianship questions. But nobody had pierced or gone inside the Beatles. They were sealed off. They were uh, the most famous group in the world. They had lovable mop tops kept behind glass barriers, you know, and stuff. So this breaking of the silence and this kind of, and also saying that they were breaking up. And in this interview, he detailed the breakup and why they break up upset lots of people. And he was harsh about McCartney. In any case, reaction was amazing. I mean, it was headlines around the world. Every, even in Tibet, you know, the, the Laza, Laza Daily covered it in the front page. You know, it was everywhere because the Beatles were everywhere. They were better known than Beatles. So I, I think it shocked John and John did not want to see it reissued as a book. And I did. And, uh, because there's no more that was already published, and I, it was my right to do so. Uh, and um, I went ahead and did it, and I regretted the bad feelings it caused, but, um, you know, and heavily, because I, I didn't, I hated, you know, doing that. I mean, John meant so much to me personally, and he had done so much for Rolling Stone, including giving us his interviews and earlier stuff uh, that put Rolling Stone on the map. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm, I, I don't know how I would have done it today. You know, today I might have done it differently. You know, today I maybe didn't. I don't need the money. You know, or needed need it then or whatever. It was but so anyway, customer. But we reconciled and we started corresponding again. And Rolling Stones always backing him on everything he was doing, and he was always writing us letters. And uh, you know, in the end, gave you know was giving another huge interview view to you know to Rolling Stone at that time, and, and he was shooting another cover. So, you know, I mean, I, I knew we would become friends again, you know, so. Okay. So, have you seen the extended uh, Let It Be Get Back on uh, TV? No, I haven't. Well, I would say, and as a Lennon fan, he comes across as an asshole. Yeah. So, what was your experience one-on-one -on -one with him? Well, John was a, uh, had a sharp tongue. Could be very tough, you know, um, constantly going on, you know, talked all the time. And um, just sharp, you know, one of those people who can't act, just their wit, you know, the saying something funny is more important than any feelings or friendship. You know, if it's a clever line, let's do it, you know. And if you're not strong enough or tough enough to take it, too bad, you know. And um, the, 
when I saw that, when I saw, well, I did see a little bit of that movie, though. But let it be. Uh, well, the first time I saw it, I saw it with John, and his things afterwards, oh, it's just Paul's point of view. This is an edit that came out years ago, and I guess had a limited release and withdrawn or something like that. He felt it was Paul doing his selections of the stuff and the material and was point, Paul's point of view. And I was always kind of sympathetic to John and because I was listening only to John about their work conditions. And their, But once you see that movie, you see John looks like he's trying to sabotage the whole session. Difficult to rein in, difficult to pay attention. You know, always making cutting remarks, not available, slumped in the side of the room. And Paul is desperately trying to organize the session and make people show up on time and doing all the things you do as a leader. It And the movie's fantastic, but I, I saw a very, uh, I saw a 45 selection of clips that were admittedly assembled by Paul. And uh, that he showed to a bunch of friends and he had, the director, Peter Jackson, put this together as a private thing. And you, you, your first thing is you're totally swept away by that history, by that time, that place, and those songs, how they're made. The, the magic of the entire thing is, is alive and full blast. Then as, you, as you're a Beals fan, like I am, was, will always be, and you start parsing it for the details of the relationship and things you're learning and things you thought this and all the little stuff that goes along with it and what every move of a hand or indicates or something like that. You see that, you know, John, Paul, John was dealing, Paul was dealing with John who was trying to sabotage the session, you know, somewhat consciously, somewhat self-consciously. He'd had it. He wanted to make it rough for Paul. You know, okay, Paul, if you want to take this thing over, go right ahead. You take it over. You run the sessions. You do, let's do your material and, you know, make me work. You know, pay for it. You know, meantime, I think he and Yoko in the corner are taking junk, which doesn't help anything. And Paul's trying to get it going. Having said all that, that album that came out of that, Let It Be, is their worst record. For the obvious reasons. You can see it in the studio. You know? They're trying to patch it together. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, that record was legendarily remixed and added to by Phil Spector. Right. Forget Phil Spector's crimes and going to jail, whatever. Where are you at with Phil Spector and his work with the Beatles? Oh, okay. I think you're going to want to critique um, that album. And I can, and people just say, that's not such a bad album. And I say, okay, well, let's go through the playlist. And you tell me, shall I bring it up? Or, or is this pointless? Well, let me be specific to you. The strings on Long and winding, Winding Road, good or bad? Soupy, soapy, you know, sentimental. Here, here, here's, here's the songs on Let It Be. You tell me if you think this is a great beat. The Two of Us. Two of Us is a good, it's a minor George Harrison song, but with the intro and the acoustic guitars, I'm down with who, Two of Us. Sweet, it's a sweet song. All right, The Long and Winding Road. Long and Winding Road, I have no time for. Across the Universe. No time for. One After 909. Better. That's a song from before where they really were the Beatles. It's okay. It's, oh, but it's, no, but it's not. For You Blue. For You Blue is once again, it was the flip side, I think, of Long and Winding Road, whatever, or Get Back. It's got an interesting sound. It's a George Harrison album track. Doesn't belong on that album. It's my, okay, Get Back. We all agree that's good, right? Right. I Me Mine. I Me Mine, no, it's strained. Let It Be. We can say that's a good one, too. Okay, I, I don't love I've it. I've got a feeling. I got, got a feeling a I love I love it. It's, a, it's just, you know, everybody had a good time. Everybody let their hair down. When you get John going underneath, I dig that. You dig it, but it's a great song. But wait, dig it? Dig a pony? Maggie no, I, May? Listen, I Come agree on. with They're you. This is a, this is a minor album. Okay, let's minor, go once. It's got three songs on it. They're worth it, you know? They got a lot of nice tunes, you know, but that's... Anyway, but the okay, question let's was... Stay. Let's stay with Phil Spector. Okay. What's your view of Instant Karma? I love that song. I mean, it's powerful. But that's John's song. I mean, what did Phil do? Added echo. But the way the drums are, the drums don't sound like anything on a Beatles track. I'm not talking about the ability, but the way they sound, they like he's hitting cardboard. It's got a different feel. Uh, Phil is a genius. He means a genius producer, and he can strip it down. I mean, I I like that what they did terrifically. You know what else did they do together? Didn't Phil produce Imagine? Is he the producer yeah, of Imagine? Yeah, Phil worked with uh, with John. I always thought Imagine was so obvious that I thought that John was laughing behind it. Although that doesn't seem to be the case. Sometimes when something is too direct, it really kind of, you know, rubs me the wrong way. 
Well, I mean, it's just such a simple song, imagine. It's got such a simple track. And it's just a piano, really. And the notion that it's going to be so spare. And Instacarma is very spare, too. Um, I mean, and Phil was a great producer, turned into a crazy man. I'm, you know, sorry to hear him go. I don't think that he did pretty great work with the Beatles, you know. You know, he's nuts. I, I, I enjoyed Phil, sort of. <laughs> okay, let's stay with uh, the Beatles before we get back to uh, Phil. So if I snap my fingers and you have to get either McCartney's 70s output or John's 70s output, what would you take if you could only pick one? If I had to only, I mean, of their solo output, post-Beatles yes. so, post solo output, I'd be going for John. I, I think uh, Paul wrote wonderful songs and still does, and they're pretty. But the major ones that live in history are by John. Okay, the Plastic Ono Band, the first album, you guys gave great reviews. It was not as commercially successful as McCartney's first solo album, McCartney with Maybe I'm Amazed. Of course, it had Mother and it had other songs. Do you think that, and there was recently a re-release, a remix. Do you think that album was unfairly overlooked, or do you think that people really get that album today? I think, I don't think it was unfairly overlooked. It was just not a commercial album in any sense. You know, I mean, there's one pretty song on it. You know, maybe Boy, was that it? Or, um, so, Paul's was, a, the difference between the two of them is in that thing. Paul's was a commercial album. It's pretty. You know, it is easy to take. Paul's album, John's album was much more interesting, much dealt with much more complex subjects, much better writing, and frankly, better melodies, but it was a hard album to listen to. It was a confrontational album, you know? It wasn't about Moon, June, Spoon, and, you know, maybe I'm amazed. It was about, Mother, you did this to me, you did that to me, and the Beatles are over, and just everything it was tough. You know, it came out of, as he said, out of a lot of pain, and it's a great piece of work. That That's the one that will have a, a living history, no matter even if it wasn't successful commercially. When did you first hear the Beatles? Uh, my first real awareness of the Beatles was uh, seeing them in Hard Day's Night. I totally missed the Sullivan Show appearance and was told about it, but I, it, I wasn't on my radar at that point for whatever reason I had just gotten in college when I saw Hard Day's Night I just that was a uh, you know real road to Damascus moment that was a a uh, what do they call those things my age is getting it's a real revelation it was an epiphany it was an epiphany for me okay for many boomers and you're just a little bit older than that uh, the Beatles were a line of demarcation you had Chuck Berry, you had Elvis in the 50s, then we had the Drek of Fabian, slightly better with Bobby Darin, then in the 60s we get the Four Seasons and Beach Boys, then the Beatles hits. For you, is it just one long continuum, or do you see that as a vast turning point? It's a, it's a vast turning point, because it wasn't just the Beatles, it was Beatles and Bob together. And, and that changed it all around. 
as well as the fact that, but it was also a continuum. I mean, how, how can you say that it was a continuum of Chuck to the Beach Boys, Elvis, that all led to the Beatles. I mean, it's, it's a continuum, obviously, but it was a huge pivot point. It wasn't an abrupt stop. It was just, and in the beginning of the book, the, the Masters, I wrote a long essay about this and about how the music of the 50s led into the music of the 60s from a, a, a social and cultural point of view, not from a musical point of view. I don't get in there and Deacon say how all Chuck Berry songs became Stone songs and the Beatles. And I don't, that, that's, you know, uh, kind of obvious. But um, that it, it was this continuum. These people set the stage, you know, I mean, Jerry Lewis and Elvis, and it just led right to the Beatles, you know? Okay, so if you speak with people today, and I do, many people say, oh, it's the same as it ever was, or to quote, you know, Paul Simon or paraphrase, every generation puts an act on the pop chart. What do you think about music's place and impact in society compared to the 60s and the early 70s? We have to be a little more specific about that, but I think it all, this particular music, rock and roll, as a continuum from its origins in the 50s, go back even from its origins as black music, but from its origins as pre-teen teen white music in the 50s, today it has this, in every step of the way, it's had this enormous impact on the people who grew up with it and the people who do it now. But particularly with the people who grew up, it stood for liberation, stood for liberation of sexuality. It stood for liberation of styles and fashion and thinking. When you get to the college years in the early 60s and the mid-60s and the baby boom coincide, the baby boom and its knowledge of civil rights and awareness of all the injustice there and the assassination of Kennedy and going to war in Vietnam, it coincides neatly with this music now that they've all their lives have loved and led and spoken with them, now really speaks from in a big, broader, deeper sense. And these people, the Beatles and Bob Dylan, come along and articulate that. Yet it continues as this musical form. And I think it becomes just more and more important and more and more profound, more moving, more powerful as you go on and on, as the groups become uh, uh, more popular and, and widespread, and as technology comes with it, the technology of the long playing record, that then the technology of the single, then the technology of the tape and the tape deck, and now the 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 A-track tape and the cassette, and all of a sudden the CD, and as we keep on going, the music becomes bigger and more popular and more widespread than ever. And today you can hear any song ever written, any place around the world that you are at any time, free. So I mean I think the impact, the influence of the music is so broad and the content was so important and real in people's lives, people's personal lives, emotional lives of how do I love two people at once or how do I treat somebody I've wronged or, you know, that, that just the deep or the personal moral level plus the political level. Where do I, where do I stand? What do I do in such an unjust society that's, that's been so unjust to its black population or has created these unjust wars and, you know, and where we're destroying the planet. I mean, so this music has spoken to it all all that, and for a generation, and to the issue, and I think to more than just a generation. And I think it's, it's influenced that generation, moved that generation, and guided that generation. And that has been the whole premise of Rolling Stone, one of the, whole, one of the premises, the key premises of Rolling Stone from the beginning, 
that these people, and these people I've interviewed in a book that I call the masters, you know, were the poets, were the truth tellers of, you know, the gatekeepers of truth is what I call them, you know, and the people who come out and tell the truth about society, you know, which you could learn more about what was going on in America from Bob Dylan or the Grateful Dead then, and today from Bruce, then you learn from any of the poet, from any of the politicians or the preachers, you know, or the the entertainers, you know, that truth was coming out of these mouths and out of these eyes. Is rock dead today? No, not at all. I, I mean, again, it depends how you want to define rock. Are you talking about rock in the fifties? You're talking rock in a broader sense, as a musical. I don't know. I, I still love it. I'm still totally taken by it. I know that my children and hundreds and thousands of other people listen to it and love it because they can hear it all the time. They don't have to pay for it. So the Beatles is still probably the most popular group in the world, you know, of all the things. And is it as forefront of mind as it was then? Now when we have these pop groups and the rap groups dominating charts all over the place, which we did again earlier on. You know, we had Fabian and as you were talking about earlier, we had all the teen groups. So I don't, I don't think so. And I don't think music as a form is is dead or less influential in the lives of the people who love it. I think there's still lots and lots of messages and lots and lots of, of concern. I mean, it's a passionate music. Music in and of itself, of all the arts, is the most passionate and soulful because it's not it's, it's not articulable in something you feel. You know, it's not something you visualize and see a painting or it's not something you read. You know, you feel that stuff. And it has that power. Okay. In the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, it was anathema to sell out. Now everybody says credibility is not an issue. Everybody accepts that everybody sells out. Where are you on that? Well, I don't know, again, what you mean by selling out. Do you mean accepting commercial sponsorship for yes. a tour or yes. selling your, your song for a car commercial? Selling your car for a car commercial, brand extension into clothing, perfume, etc. I, I, to me, it has not affected the quality of the music, what they've written, or my belief in the music. And uh, when I see Dylan doing a Joe Van commercial, you know, or I think the, the when I see the, st the Stone started with the Joe Van for that right uh, tour. That was their first one. But let's start. Let's go back to what I consider the beginning of it in our era which is the Jefferson Airplane lent their music in 1967-68 to a commercial for White Levi's. Now, is that selling out? That, that, well, if we go back into history, and it's all on YouTube, most of these acts on the way up did commercials for soft drinks, etc. Like and who? it was only when they reached ubiquity that they said no. Well, I, I don't understand. Like who? I don't know. I don't... I'm taking... The, the who a, did commercials? Everybody did commercials on the I way up. I don't think the who did. They had one commercial. I think that was it. But I, the reason I used the White Jefferson Star Airplane and, and as an example is that that is the very culture which started this whole bitch about selling out and making it anathema and making it wrong thing to do and lack of conscience and good vibes and you're now a hippie capitalist and you don't subscribe to the new system of love is everywhere yet and there was a, some bitching not a lot but that's where the bitching started and the bitching started right there and over that 
particular use of that particular song. I think it might have been White Rabbit. Now, I just asked, looking back at it, I said, oh, well, yes, of course, they did accept money from a corporation for the use of their, you know, this beautiful music that is supposed to be their treasure and their special thing. But what, what, did, what, did, what did they harm did it cause? What was the harm it did then or now? I mean, you heard the music. You thought about White Levi's. You know, it wasn't that they weren't selling cigarettes. They weren't selling, you know, bad, uh, you know, uh, 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 cushion, bad safety cushions for cars. I mean, and so you got, so the Stones were lending their name to a perfume or Bob Dylan is selling. It was, it was the Stones first with Joe I, just, I don't, I, I mean, in the end, I don't mind it at all. You know, when I see the people I do it, these are among the people who are, have got the most integrity of anybody I know, whether it's Bruce or Bob or Neil Young, and they all do have their different things, you know? You know, Bob never did it, you know? This, U2 does it with, with iPhones or iTunes, which is not a bad product at all, but, you know, that's their attitude towards it. And they're relentlessly commercial, Bono, and see a bigger audience coming from it and see how it cross-promotes and all this stuff. It, if it doesn't bother them, frankly, it doesn't bother me. I'm quite used to it. I think it's harmless. Okay, let's switch gears to Townsend, who opens the book. You interview him just before Tommy. Are you a Tommy guy or a Quadrophenia guy? I, 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 don't, I have not thought in those terms. I'm not that passionate on it. Okay, then what was your motivation for opening the book with Townsend? He was the first real interview that I did. And I thought, and I mentioned before I did Hendrix, and did I mention I didn't Eric Clapton too early on before Rolling Stones started? This is the first attempt to do a kind of deep dive, a lot of research interview with the Rocks, you know, that it was the first one there. And it was 1968. And it was so clearly of its time and era, the way we were talking, what we were talking about, the passion, the confidence you know all this stuff and the i published the whole book in chronological order so it'll give you a sense of the growth of rock and roll and the growth of the time period the history my own history and what i was looking for and and how we all do and grow grow up and the and the, really the, the epilogue is the interview with with bruce springsteen which i did just this year this last summer this summer uh because i wouldn't put out a book called the masters without bruce in it and he just happened to be the, a guy who I never got around to interviewing while I was doing while I was running Rolling Stone. I mean, the last one I did was like six or seven years ago. It was Bono, and uh, by new and I just so it was nice to sit down at Bruce's house and let's look back on all this now. Remember when we were young and when we did that? What do we think today? So to, it was to, the reason I put Pete first was to suggest a kind of a history, a kind of historical perspective, and that you could read this book also as a history. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, this is audio only, but in video on Zoom, I can see you. You look young for your age, but you're not taking any steps to uh, forestall the uh, physical image of your body. Whereas many of these acts... They play to people who are in their 70s, yet they have plastic surgery and hair pieces. What do you think about these aging rock acts? Do you lament the fact that they haven't gotten older and instead of singing about Moon in June, they haven't sung about divorce and other issues that affect people who are older? Well, I don't I don't think that's wholly true. <laughs> First off, um, uh, of the people we're talking about here, uh, the message, I'm just trying to think who might have had plastic. First off, they're all thin as could be to begin with, you know, except for Bono. Well, you know, when I see Mick Jagger rehearsing for a tour in a ballet studio dancing, yeah. it's that's a turnoff for me. It is. I look at it as my age, and I think, my God, this guy is several years older than me, in amazing shape. And same with Bruce. I mean, younger than me, but these guys are in amazing shape because that's their profession. They, I don't have to go up on the stage and dance around for two and a half hours. I don't have to look sexy and look good and, and, and stay in that kind of shape to do that. These guys do. That's their job. So I don't begrudge any of it. And, and Mick is not shot and plastic surgery. Mick has not done plastic surgery. They take one look at Mick. That's not a plastic surgery type person. And I don't know anybody here that I, I think that has done plastic, that has done plastic surgery. You know, they live well. Well, I know things that I'd rather not reveal. But my point is that we have aged and some of these acts, their major impact upon society in terms of new material is in the past. And therefore, one can go and have nostalgia, but aren't some of these acts frozen in the amber? They're just playing the same songs. Let me go one step further. Bruce Springsteen makes two solo albums. Okay, You've Been Touching Lucky Town. The audience 
says you can't leave the E Street behind, E Street band behind. Then he reunites with the E Street band. For me, that is giving the audience what they want. One of the great things about Dylan, I don't want to see him anymore. I've been to the never-ending tour, but he's making it interesting. He's still pushing the envelope, but he's one of the very few. All right, let's first off, that's a lot of stuff to have to deal with here, okay? Um, and first off, in terms of plastic surgery and looking your age, I would submit that Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger all look more than their age. They look, look their age. I haven't seen Pete lately, but I don't think he's gone for anything radical, anything. Secondly, but the bigger point, is responding to your audience in and of itself bad? Listening to your audience. You know, me, uh, listening you to know your from, subter from subterranean home pick blues, you know, uh, don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters. Great language. Are you supposed to be independent? What do you mean? He is independent. He writes whatever he wants. He's not paying attention to his audience right now. He's writing. No, 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 no. I say Dylan is a beacon. I'm talking about these other acts giving the audience what they want. All right. So we're talking about, let's talk about, who, who do you want to talk Bruce, you mentioned. Bruce is. Let, let's Bruce talk is, about Jagger. Okay. No, let's talk, okay. Okay. Let's talk about Mick. Mick has got. Okay. A, Mick, every each one of them is different. There's no rule applies to them all. Mick has got a new record coming out. It's got some really great stuff on it, okay? He's not had plastic surgery. He stays in shape. He is, his whole thing is has to do with his audience from the beginning of time to now. You know, he gets out there and he's a performer. And he, he behaves, behaves. He creates the rules for performing and the relationship with the audience. That's his thing. You know, so he's still doing it. And he deserves praise for being able to sing fucking Jumping Jack Flash is good today as then. And also his new records and blowing it away. What is it? That's his job, the audience. That he's not being told to do by anything. That's what he can do. And he enjoys doing it. He loves getting up there wait, 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 and playing. Did you watch the uh, press conference with Jimmy Fallon? I saw a bit and snippets of it, yeah. Okay, didn't it look sad? Two 80-year-old guys out peddling their music with the jokester. These were this was a this was a band that was dangerous, cutting edge at one point. Excuse me. Well, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 70. About, okay. They were in their 20s, 60 years on, 60 years later on, 60 years. They may be less cutting edge. They may be less good looking. They may be doing uh, not, but they're still there. They're still performing as pressily ever. They're still loving rock and roll. They're still loving their life, and they're bringing joy to all of ours. Hey, six years. Now, wait, 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 wait. You're a guy. You're a guy who no. started Rolling Stone. The music was religion. Sixty it years ago, the, and now you basically being long in the tooth. Well, these altacockers, they're out there doing. I got to give them some credit. No, no, I'm doing more than that. They're doing some of their best work. They're still performing nearly at the top, nearly at the top of their game. Wait, wait, still you doing know, work. Let you, me finish. They're still doing work that's, that's vital, that's pertinent to today, the things they're singing about. I mean, Bruce is singing about this last album. He's singing about death in his last album. He's dealing with the concerns of being his age and with death and going old and looking back and nostalgia. I mean, he's he's vitally involved in in the issues that are relevant to him and may not be irrelevant and are going to be relevant to his audience. I mean, I think you're 
I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I've heard this point of view often. Yes, we are getting old. B, we look old. You know, C, we walk old. But we're still alive and we're still kicking. And we're still kicking the shit out of everybody else. Well, Next. one of the things... One of the Bring things it on, you, one of the things you popularize via your serialization of what became the right stuff was the concept of pushing the envelope. Chuck Yeager pushing the envelope. And that's what this music did. If you wanted to know what was going on, mm -hmm. you listened to a record. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case anymore, even in hip hop. And Therefore, I mean, it's if I watch streaming television, okay, and I watch some of the Borgen, okay, a Danish show on Netflix, I get an impact in it and a feeling that I don't get from most of the music. Doesn't mean there aren't great records out Which there. Which music? Which music? The music we're talking about the masters and the music of today that's coming out by currently hot selling rock records. Current we're not music talking about music. we're not talking about classic records. So you're talking about the we're talking music. about new music. Okay, good. Keep going. All right, you want my response to that? Yes. Basically, first and first off, you're fucking seventy years old, and this is music being made by twenty and thirty year olds. So of course it won't. It's not going to impact you. You don't look at these people as being your contemporaries. You don't. Their wealth, their concerns are much different than yours are at seventy. That's one number one. Okay. Number two is. Boy, have the times changed. And I'll tell you, when this music came out, when the Stones and stuff that moved us, that I'm celebrating here, that I think is still so great, the me look at the media landscape then. There are three networks. You know, today, there was no digital. The today, everything in the world is available instantly by camera, by these, the social media, by Google. By I mean, there's no place in the world where something has not already been articulated. And and now all of a sudden, because of this new freedom of media, that media has, it's able to deal with the most avant-garde issues, the most sensitive topics, the most extreme stuff, the weirdest stuff. Whereas in back in the day, you weren't allowed to do that. But now it's everywhere. So it makes the music the makes the other, makes the music in this environment less vital and important and impactful than it was in an environment. 50 years ago when you couldn't hear a lot of the stuff expressed on TV or newspapers or magazines when Rolling Stone didn't exist when the network when the internet didn't exist where when CDs didn't exist so it's in a much different context and you're a much different audience you're not the audience for today's music so I mean it makes sense I say you know I say you should sit back and enjoy and celebrate how great this music was and how lucky you were and I was to be alive in a period in the 60s and the 70s and some in the 80s where all these brilliant freaking musicians and writers and singers were all together about the same time creating a, that same period listening to each other impacting each other influencing each other s driving each other along you know by by competition or by inspiration and what a rare period this was in not just american history and uh musical history that this level of genius, but in world history, you know, where we were present during one of the great renaissances of our times and of, 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 of world times. And it's not something you see very often. I mean, uh, it, it's easily fully comparable to what we've seen to Paris in the twenties, when there are all these painters, Matisse, Picasso, et cetera, and when Hemingway and Fitzgerald were there, but even, and as good as all they were, and this may sound 
uh, a extreme claim, their cha- the change they brought to art, the revivication of art, bringing along modern art, but you know all art and writing by that time become classical and stale and boring. But this was also accompanied. What we did was not only revive all this, but it came along a time of great political, social, technological change in the world. And this is the, this era was when the world is transferred from that old world, pre-nuclear world, to this new world of destruction, of internet, of of uh, unfathomable number of things that have changed. The world has more than shrunk. It's all a different place. It's not a bunch of isolated different countries around the world. After World War II, it's, it's all burnt now so unified as ever. And it's comparable to the change in the world that took place, you know, in in, in Greece, you know, or in, in, in Italy, in Venice, in this in the classical era of that era, or during Elizabeth e, Elizabethan England, when they came out of these countries who were hugely powerful within the world, Venice. Greece, you know, which they, and England, they ran the world. They were the richest countries in the world. They educated their populace. They had this sense of mastery and achievement and domination, and they were in charge of things. A bunch of stuff is more and more complicated to, to, to tease out, but that's what this period, I think, was about, you know? And, 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 uh, and I think that's what this work stands for. You know, it had that relationship to its times, you know? And it wasn't painting, it wasn't writing. It certainly took advantage of the, the technology of the times. This is based on the technology of the times, both to reproduce and spread it, the way that the printed word at one time reproduced and spread that and so forth. So, I mean, that's the long view, and we're just older now, you know? No, I, I think that's very well articulated that we don't live in a monoculture, and you mentioned the word renaissance, which I wholly agree with. There was the renaissance hundreds of years ago, People have painted and sculpted since then, mm-hmm. but there's only one renaissance. Right. Just going through the decades, though, to what degree do you believe our change in culture and the attendant income inequality was driven by Reagan, who's been canonized by the right? And to what degree has that changed our society and left us where we are now? Well... I mean, I think all these changes were afoot despite, without Reagan. I mean, this has all happened without him. Uh, he's almost irrelevant to them. But I, Reagan was a, you know, a gentle, easy to swallow salesman of a really increasingly putrid influence on society. Most particularly in what he did with income taxes and taxes, where the the the, the ex- div- extreme wealth divide, which plagues us now, started under him, under reduction of gutting of the union, starting under uh, under him, and uh, the empowering of the religious right started under him for modern times, and so he made it all seem smooth and wonderful. But I don't view him as a hero or a very good president, or you know. But a funny, charming guy. Uh, but all these things, I mean, I think all the worst stuff in, in contemporary, it's not that it hasn't happened before. You know, this kind of, his war the religious right, or income ta- income disparities haven't happened before in history. They've been all this through. We've had many religious awakenings. We've had many right-wing crusades. We've had many huge disparities of wealth before. In modern times, Reagan was the first instrument of it. And it just continued under, you know, Bush Sr., Bush Jr., 
and Trump. Uh, of them all, the worst has been was Bush Jr., George W. Bush. Uh, so, I mean, I, 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 the Republicans have been terrible. And I think, yes, it's been a fight against the Republican ideology. So you believe it's somewhat secular that these things wouldn't have happened without Reagan. What was in the culture that was driving these things? Reagan, that the reactionary stuff, the history of America. I mean, America has been a weird place. We started off burning witches. We started off fleeing, you know, as a kind of as a Puritan society, you know, with this very harsh religious strictures in the society. We say we're a society free of religion, but we had the puritanical stuff. And so it's just been, we were a slave society. We, we, I mean, how do you, how, how do you account for putting men in chains and whipping them in the way they were treated? We fought a fucking war in which a couple of million people died, I think, the worst, over the issue of slavery, how you treat your fellow man. That war's never been resolved, you know? So, I mean, it's been lurking under the American surface as part of the modern dilemma for years. Uh, we've, Create great good, good in the world and, and, and great evil. And I think that this kind of empowered, this generation of America has been called on to kind of look back and sit back on that because we can't go on any longer as we've been going on. But if we go on any longer than this, the planet's over, you know, by environmental destruction and nuclear war, you know. <laughs> so it, it, we need a change in, in consciousness, you know, not behavior. We have to do this thing of, love one another we have to all these bromides that we've heard in rock and roll they're true you know and we're we're at a point if you don't do that you know we're gonna we're gonna some awful things are gonna happen um but i'm wondering whether that was the question or not well no you answer but let me let me just go to the present so in your crystal ball what happens in the future geez i don't know could go to me it could go either way you know i mean there's great progress is being made. We have great knowledge, great ability. We everybody knows what the problems are. You know, we know essentially how to technically solve all these things. What should be done? What should be right? But it'll take, you know, it's a change in political will and consciousness and right and wrong. I think Al Gore expresses really once we see the environmental question and all these questions as, as issues of right or wrong, then we're going to solve them. Because we'll know what's right to do. We'll know what's wrong to do. And so patently clear what's right and what's wrong. And if people just get on the side doing the right thing, you know, I mean, he keeps saying political will is a renewable resource. I, I hope so. But you've got powerful, but on the other hand, as Bob Dylan says to me in the last time, he says, human nature hasn't changed fundamentally in 3,000 years. You know, it's still... Greed, power, you know, the, the dim side is greed-driven, is power-driven. How do we break that cycle? These are powerful interests and powerful, wealthy people and corporations we're up against, you know. And they're, they're, they're hands, they're deeply involved in social structures and how things run. I mean, it's not just the greed of the oil business, but it's greed of all the people who underline it, pers people who work there, let alone people at Morgan Stanley who finance it, you know, the Bank of America who pay for and loan them billions of dollars every year to keep going. So I, I, it's, it's hard to know. I, um, but I think that in the end, you have to live with hope and optimism and you have to take the hopeful approach. I don't think you have any choice but to do that. Otherwise, it's impossible to live.
Okay, you're a student of the game. We remember the 60s when you didn't want to have long here south of the Mason-Dixon line, Mm -hmm. rednecks. Whatever's going on is much further to the extreme now. What accounts for the hardcore belief in Trump irrelevant of the indictments and other accusations? Well, I mean, two things. One, again, I would bring you back to American history. And this kind of these kind of people have been a constant part of American history. I would just guess it's been 30% of American history from the beginning. Remember, again, we fought the Civil War. We had hundreds of thousands of, you know, millions of people probably fighting for slavery, like sacrificing their lives for slavery, you know? And then we had Father Coughlin and the, and the pro-Nazi movement that keep America out of the war. We had McCarthyism. So there's and the religious right. We've always had this strain in American politics and American culture. So obviously, I think Trump has tapped into that strain. It's a big strain, and it uh, is going to be loyal to anybody. You know, it's loyal to anybody, and you're not going to change your minds. You know, there's no amount of logic, no amount of grand jury indictments, nothing that's going to change your mind. I mean, not even this sinning bastard Trump and his five wives and his, you know on and on whatever even that doesn't turn these people off who are you know, the the fundamental anti-abortion religious people God-fearing you know the, these are the least Christian people in the world you know Trump's supporters they're the most negative they're they're demeaning and of poor people they're racial I mean let let me back off this the other thing is that it We've got this economic disparity going on, this huge thing where people are making, you know, 30, 30, 40 billion, I mean, excuse me, $300 million a year. They're worth billions of dollars. The wealth is spread around in the country. Is, the, wealth, the wealth wealth is big and it's enormous. And people, most people have been cut out of the system. It's, they don't have unions anymore. They don't have highways. They don't have two cars in their garage and, and get their summer vacation. So people are feeling... Deprived the system, you know, take, take it that they haven't received the benefit of the system even though they worked their ass off. And it's been done historically in the last 30, 40, 50 years by Democrats as well as Republicans. Less so by the Democrats, more so by the Republicans. But today it's stunning. The Democrats are saying, let's lower drug prices. Let's give equitable medical care. And the Republicans are tooth and nail against lowering drug prices. Let the pharma companies make billions of profits. So they feel justly deprived. And so they're going to go with the person like Trump, who, however, however inaccurately he portrays it, nonetheless channels the frustration of the swamp. Even though he's part of the swamp, these people are so angry that they're going to believe that because they don't look beyond that. They want to blame somebody else. I'm getting fucked over by the establishment, you know, by those people. And Trump says, I'm going to save you. And that's it. And, and, and there's reason for, for him, them to think that. Just going to the opposite, we for 20-odd years, we've had Fox News, we've had this incredible mm-hmm. hammering of Democrats in the left. We have the DNC operating on its traditional principles, nominates Hillary Clinton, doesn't win. We have the same DNC saying, well, Biden beat Trump once, he's our man, even though he will be 86 if he serves a second term. What would you advise the DNC and Democratic Party? Tell her the truth. Stick to your guns. Don't be intimidated by these assholes. Embrace Biden. He's great. That's what I would say. 
Are you troubled at all by his age? Well, of course, everybody's troubled by the fact he's old, but I'm not troubled by he is. Uh, he, he's, I think he's the most common presenter to run the country. He's certainly better than any other Republican being discussed or in the process now. I wouldn't trust one of those people with running the country. You know, but I trust Biden. He's got the experience and the wisdom, the knowledge. Look at what a great job he's doing right now. Look at the legislation he's gotten passed, which was stuck there all these years. He's fighting both China and Russia at once, you know, and doing a hell of a job of that. This looks to me like a fully competent, prepared, knowledgeable, strategic president. And he doesn't get ruffled, his feathers don't ruffled by the latest criticism or whatever. If you get into the, the news cycle, responding to criticism all the time, then you're a dead duck. Then you're, then you're playing the other person's game. I think Fox is, is definitely a new part of the equation um, these years. And, and it's, it's just been, a, it's just poison. It's like a fear factory. You know, it goes out and creates fear wherever and drives this, this people along. But, you know, I like Biden. I like what the Democrats are doing. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. It used to be Rolling Stone spoke to a generation in the last handful of years exacerbated by the COVID era. All these magazines are going out of business. I'm always wary of subscribing to a magazine that will go out of business. Used to happen in the past, like with Manhattan E. Clay Felk or whatever, but now Entertainment Tonight doesn't publish Entertainment Weekly, excuse me. Uh, what is the future of the magazine business? You're an expert as much as anybody. 
Well, the fact that the magazines are doing so poorly is that there's no economic model left for them. The, the internet has taken away all the advertising uh, without compensation. It stole all the material. There was the magazines and newspapers assembled, paid all this money for it. They took it free, put it on their websites and sold advertising on it and took away the advertisers that the magazines needed to survive on newspapers and the news business. What I could call, by the way, the free press, which is vital to this country. And they've replaced it with this, you know, the internet goop uh, of quick hits and no restraints, no no laws governing it, no laws requiring it to be not libelous or to be truthful and accurate. They somehow uh, immunize themselves from from all those rules, you know. But they're the most powerful press in the country. But the specific question about there's no economic model, there's no advertising left. <coughs> so, um, you know, it's a more powerful medium, a more better medium for advertisers because you can target. Not only can you target down to the person, you can also send ad TV advertising in the, on the internet, on your phone. You know, visual advertising. So those, th the magazines and newspapers, free newspaper, free press was supported by advertisers. That's gone. And so there's not, there's going to be room for specialty magazines and trade journals and there'll be room for some magazines that are really highly visual, hard, highly art-directed. But I don't think you're going to have mass magazines anymore. You're not going to have general interest magazines like Rolling Stone anymore. Okay, you have Margaret Sullivan, who was the ombudsman for the New York Times, then went to uh, Washington Post, now at The Guardian, wrote a whole book, How to Save the News Industry. In my observation, whenever you try to save something, you can't. It's only you have to progress to the new thing in the future. Do you believe newspapers need to be propped up, or do you have to let the economic system work itself out and go into the future? I think they can be and should be propped up. Uh, first off, what is the Internet, which is his main conversation, but a government-subsidized thing in great part? They... They, they've been exempt from taxes for the longest period of time. They're exempt from regulation that I was just speaking of, of content regulation by under the rules of the free press. They were financed and supported initially by the government, which paid for the beginning of the, of the, of the Internet and invented the Internet and still subsidizes it with all kinds of tax breaks and all kinds of <clears throat> contracts from the Defense Department, higher education, you know, paying these companies enormous months of money. So if you want to talk about a subsidized industry, you know, it's the internet. Now they've got billions and billions and hundreds of billions of sitting in their bank accounts, which ought to be repurposed. That's tax money they should have paid into the system on repurposed. And you could do things that that you call it artificially propping it up. And I agree with you about how you can't save a dying dog, but you could give the magazine newspapers and mail them free. If we're going to give the internet freedom of the public airwaves and the public utilities, and they don't pay for that, then the newspapers and magazines maybe should get some of the same. So if you take away the, the cost of postage for them, you know, and subsidized by the government, that's a start. Yeah. And I can think of a, a bunch of other ways, you know, uh, in which there's subsidies, which would be good. I mean, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about subsidizing something here that, like the British subsidized the BBC. I mean, we have NPR. We could go further than that. and subsidize But this medium, the press, the free press, was deemed by uh, 
the founding fathers to be absolutely vital to the function of democracy, that a well-informed public was necessary to make, to elect the politicians that we wanted and to make the decisions and policy decisions that we wanted. And I think that judgment they made was absolutely correct in the first place, that when the public turns on something and they, they properly formed public opinion, it's absolutely imperative to public policy. And we're not getting that now. It was so important that they made it the First Amendment to the United States that you could not inhibit the practice of free press. We need that, and we need to restore that. Okay, Lena Khan, who uh, is our antitrust point person, is being more aggressive. Do you have a viewpoint on antitrust? Yeah, I think we ought to enforce the laws. I think every time you've seen uh, uh, this kind of like anti-competitive uh, combination of, of elements of, of manufacturing or industry elements, whether it was the three collar makers or the three... Uh, broadcasters, network broadcasters, or the telephone company, or you name it, you know, Microsoft itself, you you raised prices and you stultified innovation and competition. Since we broke up the telephone companies, look at what's happened as the baby bills went into competition and started financing cellular service. Same with Microsoft. Look what happened. A thousand internet companies bloomed and all this, you know, other stuff. The three networks were terrible and left all, you know, they... But they'll get back to one good thing they did. But in terms of their programming, the liberality of it, you know, also now you've got, and the three car manufacturers, because of their stifling of competition, you know, because they were such monopolists, didn't have to compete, led the open the market to Japanese, Germans, all the people that innovated and did better cars, far better cars. The problem wasn't how clever the Japanese were, it was the fact that we were so retarded. We made clunky cars. The doors didn't fit properly into the, you know, into the door frame. <laughs> no, they just didn't do good cars. And somebody else came along. So I think if we had some com- the history of competition is good for us. But I say this about it. Regulated competition. Capitalism cannot be unregulated. There has to be supervision. It has to be managed properly. Because unregulated competition where greed conquers all ain't, gonna, ain't good for us. And that's what happens. So we need regulated capitalism. What, what the networks did when there were three of them, and there wasn't all this kind of crazy internet stuff, is we were able to unify society. You know, with standards of, everybody agreed upon, we could agree upon standards of truth, of fact, and not all this internet crap that goes on, the unregulated, not the unregulated, Crap, if we were really regulating the networks even more if that by the FCC about objectivity, you know, fairness, truth, we would have more results like we just had in the Fox versus Dominion case. That they've been so unsupervised that they, they, they damage society. So I want to, we need managed cap. We cannot, cannot have monopoly capitalism. It'll ruin us. We need managed capitalism. Okay, you have a new book coming out. 50 years ago, you had your own publishing company, Straight Arrow. Lennon Remembers came out on that. Mm-hmm. Bill Owens, Suburbia. What'd you learn in that venture? That, that book publishing is its own very special business. It requires its own intuitive touch and its own time frame and 
rhythm, and uh, that wasn't my business. My business was magazines and news. Okay, switching to you, you ultimately got involved with us. You purchase us. Is gossip a fundamental element of society? Is it more powerful now, less powerful? There's certainly much more information online. By the same token, it's not like the old days where you went to the supermarket and you saw just a couple of magazines, saw a headline, and everybody knew those. I'm sorry, I, I was thinking, I missed the very the first part of it, the premise. The, the, the bottom line with Us Magazine is gossip, something right. that is institutional, that oh, just transcends time, or are we in a waning era, and it's ironic because we have much more information, yet nothing has the penetration of the way it used to. Gossip is eternal. You know, uh, it's been with us since the beginning of time. I mean, what, what's the world's oldest profession, right? We say that's prostitution. What's the world's second oldest profession is talking about who's doing it, right? So, I mean, you're going to have gossip. Forget. Don't, don't, you know, it's too much fun. Everybody likes it. We're told not to, you know, thou shall not, whatever. But the nature of, of it has changed so much. The, the, that, there's, it's first off, it's on the internet. It's everywhere, you know. So you you don't have any filters on it anymore, and you've got different sets of people. And, and frankly, more people are more interested about gossip in the, among their these people in the real world, or these instant celebrities, or these influencers, or people. You know, the they're not most of these. They're not made by movie studios or or. Even, you know, anymore. I mean, what movie stars or television do you care about their lives that much? Anymore? I don't know because I'm your age. And we, I don't know who they are, but they're not the great unifying people these are. There's thousands of them, you know, and it's the result of reality TV. And it's the result of, as Andy Warhol said, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. You know, so everybody is famous for 15 minutes. And we now have the technology that enables that. So do you read the new Jay Penske-controlled Rolling Stone? Yeah, of course I see it, yeah. Do I read everything? No. But I, of course I see, yeah. What am I supposed to say? It's, it's not in my era anymore. Okay, but if you see it, if you could snap. Conventional wisdom is that Rolling Stone missed the internet. It was one of many companies that was accused of that. If you look at... Rolling Stone today, and you snap my fingers and you're in charge, what would you do differently? Well, I think that the first question, I think every publishing company missed the internet except for the New York Times, which seemed to have really did finally figure it out. I mean, God bless. Uh, nobody, none of the big, no Hearst, no Disney, Condé Nast, Murdoch. Remember, my, bought MySpace for half a billion dollars? Nobody figured out, and nobody, you know, so you can't turn around a big old, you know, you're running a big old battleship. Nobody, you can't, the new thing, it's hard to figure that out. Um, so, but I must say, I'm the only, we're the only company that didn't lose millions and millions of dollars on it by saying, we're not going to jump in this prematurely. Uh, and if I could snap my fingers, I would put myself back in charge. <laughs> no, but I, 
I would say well, if you, know, you were if you were back in charge, what would you do? I don't I don't think I should be back in charge. I think it's time for a new group of people to do it, and they're doing it, and they're doing it for the kind of a newer audience and in a newer way. It's very internet oriented now, more than magazine oriented. And I wouldn't have made those. I would. I'm a magazine person, not an internet person. So you know, I'm the wrong person. Okay, but if you look at MTV, MTV, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't accept. I'll tell you, I wouldn't accept a job. Okay, MTV famously decided they were going to stick with a demo as opposed to stick with their audience. They fired the original VJs. Rolling Stone certainly evolved. Was that something where you sat down and say, we have to change? Or was it something happened unconsciously? What was going on for those 50 years? Well, over my 50 years? Your I just, 50 years. My we're 50, only talking I, about you. We we basically followed the news. What was in the news? What was most people there's movies or was it music stars or there's politics or whatever it is. We you know both in terms of what we put on the cover and the stories we cover inside. There's an election, so we were always with what the most people were interested in. You know, if it was a new music star like Taylor Swift who was causing us a fuss, we put her on the cover. You know, if it was a you know a old coot running for office hillary clinton we put her on the cover if it was you know a movie star you know so we we did all kinds of things but basically what were people who in our culture who we wanted to influence our generation and leaders of our generation and the people what were they most interested in and seen through the prism of culture you know using culture as a filter for it so whether it was the actual culture or the values of that culture, what the, that culture stood for, what I thought the value should be, that we should stand for, um, and it, it we broadly covered everything. I mean, we, we we covered all teen pop, whether it was you know Britney and Justin back in the day, up to Taylor Swift. Under when I was there, we did we had done at least three Taylor Swift covers. You know, rap we had we had every rap star worth imagining, you know, worth worth it on the cover. We never gave us up an inch. In our coverage of that, and had the best coverage of any magazine of the country on rap, including Vibe and and uh, um, what was the other one besides Vibe? Uh, the Source. Uh, and uh, and politics, absolute vital force in politics and national politics. We had a role, a voice in that. So, um, and I like that, but. Obviously, you know, things are different now. I mean, I think without that unique mix and all that, the centrality of a magazine was diminished. And then because the impact, the importance of the internet was so much greater and it kind of diminished the voice. But, you know, we were unusual, highly unusual. You know, Tom Wolfe famously disparaged the New Yorker. What's your take on the New Yorker? Well, I, I mean, his thing was funny at the time. I mean, the New Yorker was one of my favorite magazines. Okay, do you miss skiing? I shouldn't. I I do. Yes, but I'm I'm reconciled to the fact that I, I can't. But I loved it. I put years of my life into it. Just just great joy and pleasure. So rumor was that if you heard it was good, you would fly out to Sun Valley for the weekend, ski the powder. Was that true? Yes.
So how many days did you get in a year? I would do an average of about 60 to 70 every season for about 20 seasons. Are you scared? And you have to be Oh, very much that so. That's why you'd ask that question. Last year, last year I got Where? 50. Well, uh, I went to college in Vermont at Middlebury College, had its own uh -huh. ski area. Yeah. And I was a starving freestyle skier in Utah at Snowbird for two years. Oh, But right. my girlfriend... What years were those? Where those were, were 75 and 76. Interesting. Yeah. I was... Yeah, right. I'd been going to Snowbird. Because 77, just to be clear, since we're going to... Was the bad year. There wasn't another bad year after that till 2012. That mm -hmm. was when, you know, the skiers tell you right, closed for a while. But... Uh, my girlfriend's family's had a place in the lodge at Vale since the 70s. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, although the skiing is not that difficult at Vale, that's where I spend most of my time, not all of my time. I wow. hit Aspen before that. I hit Little Cottonwood Canyon a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sun Valley, phenomenal mountain. Mm -hmm. Just they don't get that much snow. But They yes. got the best snowmaking now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there so, was a season last year. I yeah so good well God bless fifty eight days is a lot of skiing as you know what that's like I and uh, I'm I'm sure I could have been more of an empire builder and made more money and you know on and on and on if I'd paid you know but I you know fuck what's life about you know it's en it's enough money and I had so much fun and my kids are all great skiers now and you know still family time and was it primarily Sun Valley. Yeah, once you end up in a place, I mean, it was it was Aspen at first. Was my, my first? Well, I grew up in San Francisco, so I skied Squaw Valley and Heavenly Valley and the Sugar Bowl. And so, as a kid, my parents met on a ski trip. So, I was really tell me that story. I went in the forties. They were both in New York, early forties, and for my my one of them put up a note at his ski store saying, "Looking for rides this weekend to Hunter Mountain or whatever," and that's how they hooked up. As skiers, you know, and and that's how they met. So we, as kids who were living in San Francisco at the time, naturally were taking up skiing every vacation. We went skiing, you know, every Christmas, everything, all the time. We went to Squaw, and they were just about to build a house there when they decided to divorce instead. So it just it just got in the blood, you know, just all of a sudden it was a family thing. And then I, I picked it up again as an adult, you know, I I skilled till about. College and I stopped and started again as an adult, coinciding with starting with Hunter, who lived in Aspen, and um, he was no great help for a scheme. Terrible, terrible, terrible influence. I mean, if you can't if you stay up to two o'clock in the morning, you're not going to ski. I mean, it's that's not. Uh, but started skiing in Aspen, and then finally, when I decided I'm going to do this for a good long time, and now it's time to buy a house, checked out the various other ski areas, and I've been skiing in Aspen, Jackson Hole. And Snowbird as a as a trio, but I'd never been to Sun Valley. But I went and looked around it, Telluride and uh, Big Sky and Sun Valley. And Sun Valley was the place that had the best mountain, the kind of skiing I like to do, the nicest environment. I wanted to get away from Aspen, all the drug trade, and from the living in a big high society culture like the kids were going to grow up in anyway. And it was just a family place, you know, world class skiing with family values, and great place to. Be. So if you skied 60 or 70 days a year, would you park your ass in Ketchum or would we just go out, you get in your plane whenever the conditions were good? Well, at first, I would, the first few days, 
first first few years, I just parked my ass and kept, you know just get a condo and catch them and all that stuff. And as I realized I was doing this more and more, uh, I said we just have to buy a house. We bought a house in Haley. Okay. And uh, and started and I realized the thing was to spend to actually if I started scheduling in advance my appointments and stuff I do in New York and made it inviolable, then I could actually spend hunks of time in Sun Valley rather than going out on the spur of the moment. So I just converted my thinking to, you know what, I'm going to live. I'll think of it as living there and coming back to New York for the occasional break. I started doing that successfully. And after that, then I gave up the plane because I wasn't commuting back and forth. I mean, I didn't get up right away, but I was going out there to live for the season, coming back for two or three periods that, First, it'd be two weeks at a time. Then it'd be a week at a time. And then finally, I started coming back just one week, you know, and come so, back. And that was it. What are you, the kind of guy? Coinciding, with, coinciding by the way, with technological progress, like the internet, really helped, you know, rather than having things FedExed out overnight and having to approve layouts like that. Okay, so what would your schedule be? Would you take the calls from Europe before you went out there? You know, with a high-speed list to run two and a half times faster, nobody skis from bell to bell. What was your schedule? I was skiing from bell to bell, and I was exhausted at the end of it and couldn't do the work, really, because I was the only one going up after lunch. And I'm going, oh, you idiot, you know. But I, as a much warmer, <laughs> yeah, and then also I was getting into smoking pot skiing, and if you do that, and I can't smoke it, so I had cookies, and then they just stay in you all day, and then you're so tired when you get home. Somehow, I, as I got older, I just said, it wasn't, I couldn't ski bell to bell anymore. That was for young people. I stopped that. I had to finally stop taking cookies because I couldn't concentrate. But I'd get up in the morning, first thing I'd be just to lift. And then when I might put my young, here's what would happen. Here's what you look for. In the last, over the last, 10, 15 years, I put my younger kids into school there and not in New York City. So in the winters, we'd go to community school and catch them. So I get up early about seven o'clock in the morning, take them out to community school and catch them from where we live, just a half an hour away, drop them off school, go over. Well, I had a condo at the base of the mountain, at the base of Baldy, where I would do some phone calls, do my half an hour of internet stuff, and then go meet, be on the first lift at 8.30 or nine. Was your condo in Warm Springs? Yeah, right at the, totally at the base of Warm Springs. Right, right. We're a lot of, and where, where do you like to ski at Sun Valley? Those, my, my favorite, well, skipping the powder days, you know, when you always right. want to go to the bowls or do some things. I mean, skiing Warm Springs itself was just great. Straight shot down Warm Springs, which you could do most of the time. You could do it nonstop if you're in shape. Nobody's there except in the holidays. I loved that. I liked, you know, Squirrel, I think it was cool. Great, you know. I mean, Orange Springs was the thing for me, you know. And then I love Mid Riv and um, uh, uh, what's next? Uh, Mid Riv. What's that called? I'll think of it in a second. My memory is so shot these days. Uh, and um, those those are the great those are the great runs. I mean, Mid Riv and Orange Springs, you can just haul fucking ass. So fast, unbelievable, and skiing at bumps in the bowl is also great. You know, it's just that's so fun when the conditions are good. Well, the great thing about Sun Valley, unlike any other place, is the slope starts at a certain pitch and yeah. it doesn't flatten out 
till you get to the lift. There are that no is, flat spots. Yeah, that is the magic. No other is there's no other mountain you can think of like that. None. And None. if you combine that, the fact that nobody's there, and a patrol doesn't stop you, if nobody's around, you can do whatever you want. I mean, there are days you go up there and Wormsley is just empty for like nearly all day. It's just your mountain. Your mountain. And did you go to other places? Did you go to South America? Oh, was, did you go to Europe? We went to, no, I never went to South America, but we went to Europe several times. And that was a lot of fun. But it's in the end, it's not as good as Sun Valley. No, it's not. I mean, the food is better, but even they even And then, you know, we went over to Jackson a couple of times. And I went back to Aspen a couple of times to see old friends and ski a little bit. By and large, once you're settled in, you know, you get to go to your own home. You know, as you get older, it's more about the comforts than, you know, the adventure of finding a new spot. And, you know, are you going to finally take Col Colbert's, which I never did. And uh, it's just easier staying home. And to what degree did your health problems fuck you up mentally? I don't think they, they make you sit back and really think about your life like they always do. And I, and I thought that was good. That was helpful for me. Yeah, that didn't fuck me up at all. It made me think twice, which is great. Well, moving forward, to what degree are you impact your everyday in life impacted by your health issues? I, I'm not, you know, as physically active at all. You know, I don't going out is a, you know, pain in the ass because I've got bad leg and use a cane. But um, you know, mentally, I'm having totally tons of fun, enjoying everything much more than I ever have in a way. You know, I've got the kids around, which are wonderful to have that life and that engagement around. And um, I'm going to write another book. I'm going to try and write another book uh, as soon as I got this one out. And um, just having a great time. I love listening to music. I'm learning. I'm listening to classical music a lot these days and really enjoying that enormously. Uh, the new, you know, I look forward to the new Rolling Stones record. Bono, I know, is cooking one up and. Bob well, I and all my favorites are got records going on. Bruce has got one in a can, two he's working on right now. And uh, so I'm, I'm fulfilled. You know, great marriage and, you know, watching my kids thrive. It's wonderful. I'm having a great time. How much do you listen to music? A lot. A lot. But I don't listen to contemporary music. You know, I listen to my old things I love and love for a long time. You know, I'll go on a kick and I'll listen to Mark Knopfler for three months. You know, and then I'll switch around and say, oh, it's time to go back to the early Rolling Stones. And it goes around and around. I listened to Sgt. Pepper's this weekend. And I mean, I forgot. <laughs> it was a, it's huge. It's an amazing record. You know, what? people have forgotten that, talking about Abbey Road, which I don't think is as good, it, the White Album, which is great but uneven. Sgt. Pepper was such a breakthrough uh -huh. in those songs. It's unreal. I mean, but you go, yeah, go, on. Going to listen to, go back and listen to it carefully. And then you realize, what well, what was going on before this? Nothing like that was going on before. There's other good songs, other good players, but nobody had composed this whole thoughtful thing. Good morning, good morning, bam, up in the morning. You know, it was genius. I mean, one forgets. And also, it was, in retrospect, such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... What do you use to listen to? You listen to vinyl, you listen to files, listen to headphones, speakers? Anything that goes through the earbuds. They're the easiest 
most convenient thing. I haven't used a pair of really high quality headphones in a long time. I I just you know can lay down and listen to music. You know what I and anywhere and anywhere and it's, the quality is good enough for me because headphone quality is just in and of itself. I this is what my latest habits. I go to sleep every night, put in the headphones and listen to Roy Orbison. I made a mixtape of Roy Orbison. I love Roy Orbison. Unbelievable. You know, I think that's also being a little bit older, crying. I was too young for crying. Pretty Woman is really when I came in. Mm -hmm. And so tell me about your two top pinch me moments meeting people. Wait a minute. Roy Orbison. First of all, he had two records of the modern era. Mystery Girl and Mystery Girl and what was the other one? What they call it? Uh, not California Blue. Anyway, this last two records got to get those two records. Okay, they're they're produced in the modern way, and so all the mod and the instrumentation is more modern, and the guitar playing is more modern. So they're beautiful records. Have some great great songs on. Them. And if you like them on Traveling Wilburys, it's kind of like that. Okay, um, I urge you to get those records. Oh, okay, in, just while just while we're on this top, anything else? Personal favorites that are overlooked by me or other people? Oh, I, I can't. That's too long. That's way too long. And I have to know what you overlooked because um, I'm, I, most of my personal favorites are popular stuff anyway because the the best stuff usually gets to be the most popular. But Roy, and then if you go back and listen to the classic Roy the late 50s and the 60s, 70s. His singing is unbelievable. He's got his voice. is matchless, peerless. But the arranging is so wonderfully classic and old-fashioned and detailed. You know, and the amount of stuff that's in a track and the way they use the strings, you know, and how soaring strings and, and the vocals is just symphonic. I mean, utterly beautiful. I, go listen carefully. And then the whole thing, I find it very soft in a, in a way that it's, it's smooth, it's soothing, as opposed to what I find, you know, rock is jangling music. It's a hard music, particularly things like The Who, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm more into the ballad thing. That's why I love Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits for that. And Bob does. He's a ballad singer. Anyway, um, but uh, two tingling moments. I mean, they're all tingling, they're, you know. Bob gives me tingles. Mick gives me, they all, I mean, I don't know. You know, they're tingling moments. I, How about a non-musician? It's hard to say. I mean, I got so accustomed to meeting presidents that I don't get tingles out of that. You know, tingling moments of meeting people. I mean, God, you know, Bob, John Lennon, Mick. Okay, so do you have the same access? Do you miss access? Do you care about access? I do. I have the same access, um, but those people, as I've always had, they are friends and colleagues. I mean, um, you know, they, they, you know, with Bono, with their fa- his family, and with the Springsteens, a very family relationship with those people. You know, they're. You know, our families are involved with each other. We're involved with their, our kids and our vacations. And, you know, our social lives are all entwined. You know, really, they're not younger, but they're like, I don't know. For years, and you know, up until recently, 
uh, you know, we're deeply involved with Yoko and Sean. Uh, I'm Sean's godfather. Sean, y Yoko's godfather, one of my kids. Sean is godfather to one of my younger kids. And uh, Mick, I just had lunch with Mick a couple of weeks ago, a couple of, months, a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> so, I mean, I'm in regular contact with everybody. I mean, Bob's not a social bee, and, and Pete is, I don't, Pete I don't see regularly, but the rest I do. Are you regularly a social being, an extrovert, or more of an introvert, want to be home reading? Both. <laughs> I love them both. And to what, you wrote an autobiography, now you have this interview book, you're talking about another book. To what degree are you concerned about legacy? I don't pay attention to it that much. You know, it's not, and it's not my issue. My issue is raising the kids and <clears throat> enjoying myself now, you know, living a good, fruitful, productive life now, doing what I can, you know, to help people and trying to stay healthy and <clears throat> get happy, bring happiness in my life and others. Okay, Jan, I want to thank you. As far as the book, the only interview I hadn't read was the first with Townsend. And it's really very interesting to see the insight and the intelligence of the different people. I mean, Dylan certainly comes across as intelligent. They all have different personalities. And whatever the reason behind making the book, it's no hype that when you sit there, it really brings back the era you know, sets the constellation right. I was surprised, not that because I thought it'd be negative, but everyone's publishing a book, but it really brought the era and the people were part of the era alive. It's, it's, it's a way, it's a real history as well as just an anthology collection. It, when I did it and read it, I was just shocked by how much good stuff is, how much people really spoke their mind. I mean, it had been years since I've read these things. And what was really there? I mean, it was, you don't get this at all today. And to add it all up, I felt I'd taken a trip through my life. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in-ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below-market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in-ready home and start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.
Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 